and welcome to AJC's Passport, a weekly podcast where we examine political events, the people driving them, and what it all means for the Jewish community. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. We're well acquainted with the quadrennial events of the Winter Olympics. Skating, skiing, the sublime sport of curling. For two weeks, every four years, we connect with our inner alpinists and eagerly cheer on our country's frozen athletes. Beyond the traditional sporting events, many Olympics, during World War II and the Cold War, for example, feature geopolitical competition. The most relevant of such incidents today is the tragic terror attack that North Korean agents carried out against a South Korean commercial airliner in advance of the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, killing all 115 passengers and crew. It was against this backdrop that worries mounted in recent months about whether and how North Korea, an emboldened North Korea, that has been lately obsessed with demonstrating its nuclear capacity and flaunting its cyber capabilities, would seek to disrupt the Pyeongchang Games. In a dramatic twist, just days before the opening ceremony, North Korea eased those concerns by agreeing to a proposal to participate in the Games on a unified Korean team. At the opening ceremony, the team marched under a flag depicting the silhouette of the full Korean peninsula, as Kim Jong-un's sister, a close advisor to the supreme leader, looked on from the stands. Perhaps even more significantly, South Korean President Moon Jae-in, a liberal in favor of greater engagement between the two Koreas, agreed to a demand to postpone a joint U.S.-North Korean military exercise as a condition for the North's Olympic participation. Joining us to talk about the tensions on the Korean Peninsula is Jamie Metzel, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and an expert on Asia policy. Jamie also sits on the advisory council of AJC's Asia Pacific Institute. Jamie, glad to have you with us today. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. The Olympics have been a great PR or perhaps propaganda moment for North Korea with Kim Yo-jong, the supreme leader's sister, smiling through the opening ceremony, athletes from the north playing alongside those from the south. My question is this, is North Korea any less dangerous today than it was a couple of weeks ago? North Korea is exactly as dangerous as it was a couple of weeks ago and frankly as it has been for a while. What's changed is the United States is much more dangerous than we used to be. So this combination of a heavily armed and dangerous North Korean leader and an even more heavily armed and destabilizing American leader is creating a lot of instability, not just in North Korea, but all around the world. When the games end and the spirit of goodwill that it fosters uh, evaporates. What happens next? How long until the next missile test uh, provocation on their side or something that America or our allies might do? What comes after? Well, it really depends on what North Korea's strategy is. So the first part of North Korea's strategy, obviously, is to 
develop a credible nuclear deterrent. And they've already got that. They've shown that they have nuclear weapons. They showed that they have uh, uh, intermediate-range ballistic missiles. They haven't shown everything about their uh, ability to deliver a miniaturized uh, nuclear weapon, but it's, I think they are credible enough. And if their goal is was just to develop nuclear weapons, that's probably already achieved. But they have a much bigger goal, and that goal is to separate the United States from our South Korean allies and to weaken uh, the U.S.-South Korea alliance. And while the North Koreans have played that strategy very, very well by first establishing their deterrent, and then at a time when the United States was going one way um, to engage with the South Koreans through the Olympics, and obviously uh, the, uh, President Moon of South Korea was elected on a more uh, liberal agenda, including uh, further outreach to the North. And so after the Olympics, the Americans are likely going to push for continually being tougher on the North, but the South Koreans are going to feel that there is an opportunity for an opening. And that's exactly what the North Koreans want, because they still have the nuclear weapons and they've weakened the U.S.-South Korean alliance. And that's why um, the, the real destabilizer, in addition to Kim Jong-un, is Donald Trump, who is just a nonsensical and dangerous and futile strategy uh, that the Americans have, have played um, over this last year that have done nothing to strengthen the United States and done everything to strengthen the North Koreans. Well, you mentioned the U.S.-South Korea alliance, and I think it's worth noting that despite everything that's gone on on the Korean peninsula, we still don't have an ambassador to South Korea. You know, that's, that's the least of it. I mean, certainly having an ambassador is, is very important. Not threatening your own allies is very important. Not telling the South Koreans that they should develop their own nuclear weapons implicitly because uh, they can't rely uh, on us. Threatening uh, Kim Jong-un uh, Kim Jong -un and North Korea with nuclear annihilation, not in coordination with our South Korean allies, who would bear the brunt of any, uh, of any conflict. Warmongering without any strategic point. Um, having a secretary of state who is powerless. Um, and out of the loop of executive authority. I mean, all of those things have um, have only, as I said, only strengthened the the, uh, the North Koreans and our the complete disarray of the United States. I mean, is is just a tragedy. Jamie, I take it you don't put too much stock in the idea that if America acts a little less predictably, that will cause the North Koreans to become somewhat less adventurous in their exploits? I don't see any evidence of that. And why would they? I mean, if we are acting unpredictable, what are they going to do? They're going to give up their nuclear weapons because they're so worried we're acting unpredictably. They have gamed this out. Everybody has gamed this out, except for maybe Donald Trump. And the only attack against North Korea that could succeed would be a complete decapitation attack, which means a full military invasion with everything that we have and maybe try to do that as a surprise. Even then, Seoul would be obliterated. You'd have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of deaths. The U.S. alliance system would fall apart because our allies would, would feel that having an alliance with us would be too dangerous because of our own unpredictability. So the North Koreans have played this out. Our military has played this out. That's General Mattis has said this uh, repeatedly. 
So there's no, there's no victory. There's no bloody nose strategy. And so acting like we think there's a bloody nose strategy, acting like, oh, we're so unpredictable. We may bomb something in North Korea. Like they've already gamed that out and strategized. They know exactly what they would do and they know what we would do. And we wouldn't accept hundreds of thousands of deaths in Seoul. We wouldn't have a full military uh, intervention. This whole thing is just madness. Well, so let me ask you about that North Korean leadership. Kim Jong-un is 34 years old and utterly unhampered by any concept of term limits. He may rule for another half a century. Dealing with him is long track speed skating, not short track. What can we expect from a 44-year-old Kim, a 54-year-old Kim, and so on? Yeah, I think these guys have a real strategy. I mean, they don't think that they are on their way out. They think that they play their cards right. They can change the environment around them. So uh, Kim Jong-un has a strategy for getting stronger. It may or may not work, but it involves nuclear weapons. It involves preliminary economic opening. And if there is this credible nuclear weapons and absolute authoritarian control, maybe there will be. Um, greater levels of, of, of opening, and the North Koreans have leverage because the Chinese have, at least up to this point, made a strategic decision that they are better off with a divided Korean peninsula and an even armed and hostile North Korea than they would be with a reunified Korea potentially allied with the United States. Well, let me ask you about that concept of a unified Korea something that we don't even think about that much, but certainly the, the Koreans do, right? South Korea has a reunification minister. The two Koreas at the Olympics are competing jointly under a unified Korea flag. Is reunification actually an ideal outcome for Koreans uh, or for us here in the States? So uh, reunification, we have a great model for it, which is Germany. East Germany ceased to exist um, it became part of this broader uh, Germany. They moved the capital, but essentially the laws of, the, of a reunified Germany are the laws of the former West Germany. And that will exactly be the case. There's nothing worth preserving in the North Korean state. You couldn't even start a new thing. South Korea is a miracle country that's done so much. They have great laws and great institutions. It would be insane to get rid of those or to try something new. If and when reunification happens, the North will cease to exist uh, in some kind of transition process and everything will become South Korea and there will be a new name of, a, of this reunified uh, um, Korean entity. So there's a model. It'll be hard. It will be expensive. And eventually that thing will, will happen. There's, the Koreans are very nationalistic. I know a lot of South Koreans are worried that this is going to be, this would be, reunification would be extremely expensive and it would be. Um, but Koreans are also very nationalistic. And when the time comes for this big job of fixing this historical abomination and aberration of North Korea, it will happen. And the Koreans, like they do everything, will do a good job of it. And the key is to not have some kind of nuclear war or devastation between here and uh, and there. Jamie, let me ask you one final question, and it's of a slightly different sort. Why do we Americans find North Korea funny? 
I might be dating myself here with a, a reference to the movie Team America, but there was also the recent Seth Rogen comedy, The Interview. There's the famous internet meme of Kim Jong-un looking at things, the infamous parody Twitter account, DPRK News Service. For some reason, North Korea inspires a humor in Americans in a way that other dangerous rogue nations like Iran, for example, simply don't. Why is that? You know, there's lots of reasons. It just seems peculiar. And when you see, you know, these leaders like Kim Jong-un with this funny hairstyle and everywhere he goes, you know, people are crying and they're, you know, he sits on a chair and then they, they cover the chair in glass so that everybody can look at it and see. I mean, it's, it's, it's like institutionalized madness. And there's something about seeing that it just seems so crazy. And it seems crazy to us. And it's even amusing to us. But, you know, I have a number of friends who are people who've been in prison camps in North Korea. And there's nothing amusing about North Korea. And we owe something, all of us as humans owe something to the people of North Korea that we don't forget them in their suffering. Uh, Jamie, thank you so much for your insights and for your time. We hope to have you on again soon. My great pleasure. Last weekend, Israeli radar picked up an Iranian drone as it took off inside Syria and flew south into Israeli airspace. Once the drone was over Israel, an Israeli military helicopter intercepted and destroyed it. In response to this violation of its airspace, the Israeli Air Force dispatched fighter jets to strike the drone's landing strip and command trailer. In the course of the bombing run, the two crew members of one Israeli plane were forced to eject as a Syrian anti-aircraft missile bore down on them. The two soldiers landed inside Israel and are recovering from their wounds. After the plane was hit, the Israeli Air Force responded further by destroying 12 additional targets. The Air Force estimates that Israel's successful strike took out nearly half of Syria's air defenses. Here to talk with us about this recent flare-up between Israel, Iran, and Syria is Lieutenant Colonel Avital Leibovich, Director of AJC Jerusalem. Avital, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I think the most confusing element of all of this is why there are Iranian troops inside Syria in the first place. Many people know that Iran has long supported Syria, but what is the Iranian military doing operating inside of another country? Well, that's a great question, Sophie. Uh, actually, Iran has uh, spelled out publicly exactly its intentions in Syria, which is first and foremost to back Assad and its forces in resuming control of the country. But in addition to that, it's very easy access to target Israel since Syria is right on the border. And actually, it's a similar situation of using Syria as a proxy to its own interests. And again, one of those interests is to target Israel. So from the Israeli security perspective, having Iran operating in Syria, having the Iranian-backed Hezbollah terror organization uh, practically running Lebanon, uh, 
this is doubtless a very concerning situation for Israel. What steps is Israel taking to ensure the long-term security of its northern border? So the current situation is quite severe. We are looking at three out of four Israeli borders that have currently Iranian presence in them. You mentioned Hezbollah in Lebanon, and of course we mentioned just Iran in Syria, but also Hamas, which is the terror organization controlling Gaza, is also funded by Iran and also relies on Iranian ideology. So it's three out of four borders. Now, this means that Israel needs to prepare itself in order to be ready for any kind of possible surprise from these Iranian proxies or Iranian troops on one of the borders. And uh, therefore, Israel is preparing, the military is preparing, uh, the Home Front Command, which is the body in Israel in charge of uh, giving guidance to the population, is also prepared. And, you know, I think the one of the uh, results of these preparations is that when these events took place on Saturday, there were around 250,000 Israelis in the Golan Heights and in the Galilee, in the northern part of Israel, just enjoying the beautiful day and not minding the tensions in the area. Avital, in addition to Iran, Russia is also a major force in Syria. And the U.S. has largely opted not to play a stabilizing role there. Reports suggest that the Israeli military communicates regularly with Russian forces to ensure that they don't run into one another. Is this ideal? Would Israel prefer to see the U.S. taking a more active role? What would the ideal American engagement in Syria be from an Israeli perspective? Well, the the Russians have uh, been uh, in the region, present in the region here, since the 50s. This is not something new. The question is, what kind of role do they get, do they take when they are present here, and what other actors are in the region as well? And their role obviously changes according to their dominance in the region. In the past eight years or nine years, we saw very little, if any, American presence in the region. And this actually created a vacuum which Russia decided to take for its own interests at the end of the day. Russia doesn't care about Syria and doesn't care about Iran. It cares about Russia. And it has its own interests, including different bases, approach to uh, the sea from Syria, and other issues as well. Of course, selling weapons and different kind of strategic missiles is one of them. Uh, Israel, uh, I think, is concerned of the lack of presence of of, um, the U.S. in the region, lack of intervention. The expectation is that such a power like the U.S. needs to have a role and a dominant role here in the region. And as a result of the absence, different processes take place. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, it is Israel who needs to pay the price that absence. Avital, there is one other big story out of Israel this week that we can't ignore. On Tuesday, 
Israeli police announced that there was sufficient evidence to recommend an indictment against Prime Minister Netanyahu. What does this mean for the prime minister's political future? And what does it mean for the future of the state of Israel? So the police recommendations now are given to the attorney general. Only after reviewing these recommendations, this is a process that will take probably many, many months. Only then the attorney general will declare if there is sufficient reasons to go to trial or not. There are currently two cases. One has to do with the bribery, and the other one has to do with the publisher of one of the biggest media outlets here in Israel. So the decision of the attorney general can be different for each of the cases. Politically, actually, this has not yet affected Netanyahu. Two days ago, the three biggest polling companies in Israel ran a poll and the majority of the population still supports Netanyahu as the uh, number one candidate for the next prime minister role. Obviously, these are only polls, and we cannot rely only on on these uh, results. But I think it's still premature because at this point, it's only recommendations. We will need to see where these things go on. Obviously, it's not good news, not for the country, not for... Uh, for the party that Netanyahu comes from, the Likud party. And I think it will be long months before we know the outcome of these uh, recommendations. Well, we'll be keeping our eyes on both of these developing stories. Avital, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you on again soon. Thank you very much, Sophie. You can subscribe to AJC's Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. Send your comments and questions to passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC's Passport.